invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6. It's on page uh, 653 if you're using a pew Bible. Proverbs chapter 28, page 653 in the pew Bible. So continue our study in Proverbs. So um, let's, let's play pretend for a minute. Let's pretend that I had an ability to give you one of two things and you had to pick which of these, one of these two you wanted. You couldn't have both. You have to have one or the other. Either, let's pretend, I could uh, grant you the ability to overcome your three most besetting, frustrating sins in your life. The three things in your life that you find as a Christian trying to obey Christ, it's like if you're going to trip up, I'm probably going to trip up there. That these are my character flaws I just seem to keep falling down on. And you know, it could be anything. It could be whatever. Anger or greed or lust or anxiety or whatever it is that you struggle with in terms of following Jesus as a Christian. And I could say, boom, and those three would be mastered. Or you could choose $300 million tax-free. <laughs> like, what would you pick? Like, honestly, before you, and before you just give the Sunday school answer, oh, I would pick to have my three. It, like, what would you really pick? Would you, which one would be more valuable to you? I was having lunch with a couple of brothers this week, and, and they're like, how's the sermon going? I was like, I don't know. I said, let me just throw out this little kind of weird, sort of different intro I'm working on. So I asked them that question. And they were, they were goofing off, okay? They, they weren't totally serious. But then they both were like, yeah, you know, my natural instinct is to pick $300 million. And one of them said, he said, I, I'd like $300 million. And he says, because, you know, Jesus died for my sins anyway. <laughs> so I was like, ooh, you know. And so the other guy who was trying to outdo the other guy and like one-up him with funniness said, he said, well, I would pick the $300 million because I really actually only have one sin that needs help. So... <laughs> But you know, I, I think our natural instinct would be to say, uh, you know, let's not get over-religious, let's not get over-zealous, you know, we've got to love ourselves and accept ourselves for who we are, blah, 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 and that kind of talk. And we'd say, give me $300 million, and I'll, I'll do something good with it for God, you know, or, or something like that. But I think that the issue that I want to get at, and the reason I ask the question, because it's really the question that we're going to be dealing with this morning, is that we... We tend, I think, to be complacent and comfortable with our spiritual growth in Christ and where we're at with the Lord. And we tend to hunger and thirst after wealth and prosperity and possessions. That our mental energy and our anxiety is spent on wealth and we're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, that's great. Whereas when I look at the Bible, as we're going to see today, both Old and New Testament, it's totally inverted. And then what you see in the Scriptures is um, that we're called to be content and complacent about our wealth, and we're called to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness and obedience. So look at our text. This is chapter 28, verse 6. It says, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. So better to be poor and have a blameless walk. And by walk, of course, this is not, does not mean a literal walk, but that's a classic Hebraism. 
a Hebrew phrase that, that means your life. You know, we kind of use that same phrase today. We talk about the journey of life. So you're walking down the journey of life, and so how you live your life. The, the goal is to be blameless. In other words, to live in a way that, relatively speaking, honors God and glorifies Him. So better to be blameless, it says, and poor. So it'd be better to drive a beat-up old car that's rusting out and barely got the inspection sticker and to be wearing last millennium's out-of-style clothes and to you know, not have the toys and the bells and whistles. Better to live that kind of life where you just kind of look poor and not with it and to be blameless before God than the opposite being, in verse 6, a rich man, a person who's got it all, but his ways are perverse, someone who sold their soul to unrighteousness in order to gain what they gain. And what's interesting is this contrast between righteousness and riches, between wisdom and wealth, is found throughout uh, the book of Proverbs. I mean, just the more I study it, the more I was like, oh, it's there and it's there and it's there. It's just again and again and again this theme pops up. So, uh, for instance, let's just do a quick uh, scan of some verses. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says in chapter 19, verse 1, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless, same phrase, than a fool whose lips are perverse. So this must have been almost a common saying back then, a common proverb. And here's another slightly different version of it. Or look at chapter 16, verse 16. 16, 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To choose understanding rather than silver. So wisdom, which as we've studied Proverbs, remember, wisdom begins with the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we fear and reverence and stand in awe of God, that causes us to be wise, which means that we begin to live life in a way that glorifies and honors God. So uh, it's better to have wisdom than gold and silver. Or look at verse um, 8 of chapter 16. Just jump back a few more verses as we go in reverse here. It says in verse 8, Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Or look at chapter 15, verses 16 to 17. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Or just one more. Look at uh, chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3. And look at verses 13 to 15. It says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. You should be blessed, happy, consider yourself you know, well off if you have wisdom and gain uh, understanding. Verse 14, For she, that is wisdom, is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. You know, silver and gold are doing pretty good right now. Even now, still, better to have wisdom and understanding. Verse 15, she's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. So, again and again and again and again, you have this very specific contrast emerging in Proverbs. And I didn't even look at all the verses. I'm just kind of giving you a sampling. There's even more of this very same contrast where very specifically righteousness is contrasted with riches. Where the pursuit of wisdom is contrasted with wealth. Where being blameless is more important than you know, bling bling, right? Whatever. Um, that 
that having God's character and godliness is far more important than goods and the things of this world. It's almost like, I don't know, we might struggle with this or something. Maybe that's why it's repeated over and over. It just keeps coming out of Proverbs and coming out of Proverbs. So that when we look at our lives as those of us who call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus, and, and we find that we're no longer hungering and thirsting after righteousness, there's a really good chance that the thing we've got distracted by could be money or the things that money buys. That that's often our default, what we go to. And so I think that's why this theme is here. It reminds me of the passage we studied last Sunday, if you were here. Because I think this Sunday's message and last Sunday's, they kind of overlap a little bit in theme. But you remember we studied last Sunday, 1 Timothy chapter 6? Let's, actually, let's put a bookmark here in Proverbs. I want to come back to Proverbs at the end. But let's jump over to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is on page 1177. We looked at this a little bit last Sunday, but I think there's more uh, pollen in this flower. So I want to buzz around it a little bit more. 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 1177. Look at verse 11. Last Sunday we looked at verses 6 to 10. Verse 11 says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So it's an interesting verse. Notice that at the center of verse 11 are two imperative verbs and both of them have to do with I don't know running there's fleeing and pursue do you see that so we're called to flee something and pursue something and I think of I think about those two words fleeing and pursuing they're both very active almost kind of reckless words you're going to sweat if you flee or if you pursue there's no way to do it casually or comfortably you'll think about this idea of fleeing like somebody's fleeing something, they're not just casually walking away from danger. Like when I think of someone fleeing, I think of like their arms are in the air and they're like, ah, you know, they're kind of running like this and they look crazy, but it doesn't matter because they're fleeing. Uh, I thought of that scene, um, I'm excited about the new movie coming out, Indiana Jones. I think about the original Indiana Jones and the original one where he's running out of the temple and the big ball starts chasing him, right? And he's fleeing. And there's cobwebs in his way. And, you know, on the way in, he was careful. He was, like, sneaking in, you know, to make sure that, that he didn't get hit by anything. But on the way out, it doesn't matter. He's reckless. He's, like, going through cobwebs and tripping over things and, you know, diving out of the cave. You know, when you're fleeing from something, you don't care how dumb you look. You don't worry if you look like you're out of control. You're running for your life. Flee, you know. There's someone over there with a gun. Flee, it's going to blow. Flee, there's a mad dog over there. You, you just run for your life. And so we're called to flee from all this. Well, what's all this? That's referring back to what we studied last Sunday, namely the love of money. Look at verse 10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We read that last Sunday. We talked about it. Remember we said last Sunday, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Very important, subtle, but critical distinction. Money is not the problem. Making money is not the problem. I hope you guys all make money in your lives and business. I'm not wishing poverty on anyone here. Make money and then tithe. It's great. Just, you know... <laughs> Wonderful. We all win. Um, but really, 
you know, the, it's the love of money. It's, it's that subtle <clears throat> something, this twist in my heart that I sometimes detect and so often don't, where my hope, my joy, my identity, my confidence has shifted to wealth and money and getting things and whatever, you know? And, and so when I detect that shift in my soul, when I detect in my soul that I'm beginning to crave something, and I find myself always going back to a magazine, I want to purchase this thing, and you know, the Best Buy catalog, I just keep going back to it and staring at the thing and wanting it and thinking about how to get it, or, or, or whether it's a certain clothes or a certain car or a boat or whatever it is that hooks us, or, or where we're just constantly thinking about how to make more money, and I wish I had money, and, and it leads us maybe to gambling or to workaholism or whatever. But there's that something in our soul that turns so that we start loving money in a kind of religious way. And what Paul is saying is when you feel that little click happen, flee! <laughs> Run! The big ball of the love of money is coming toward you. Run for your life. Get away from that. It can destroy you. Look what it says in verse 10. Some have wandered from the faith. It can lead you away from your faith. It can shipwreck your Christianity and your profession of Christ. It's really a frightening thought that money, the love of money, I should say, has that kind of negative effect upon our souls. But then notice the other verb. We flee from one thing and we pursue something else. So again, these are huffing, puffing, sweating kind of verbs. To pursue something, that also implies a kind of recklessness and a kind of wild uh, abandon as we run after our prey. So we're pursuing. And the image I had here is, um, this just shows you my, how lowbrow I am. It's a TV show, Cops, you know. I don't flip through the channels a lot, but if I am flipping through the channels, the rule, and Cops is on, I watch. I, I watch Cops because I, I can't not watch it. I don't know why. But... Um, and it's just always these, you know, these crazy situations. And there's t- and inevitably there's some guy who the police are chasing and it's night and he's hopping fences and these cops are chasing him and they're like, you know, booking it through backyards and jumping fences and ducking under branches and, you know, the police cars are converging on his position and the helicopter's chasing him with the spotlight and the guy's running and, you know, it's crazy. Uh, and that's pursuit. They're chasing him down. And these cops are jumping into yards where they don't know if there's a pit bull back there. And they're hopping over fences. They don't know what's on the other side. They're just pursuing it. So when you're pursuing something, there's a sense of kind of recklessness about it. So we're supposed to flee recklessly the love of money and pursue, in a sense, recklessly righteousness. In other words, doing what God says, obeying His law. Godliness, it says in verse 11. All God, godliness doesn't mean that we are gods or that we become gods in some New Age sense. Godliness simply means that we begin to reflect the character of God. That because God is holy, we try to become holy. Because God is loving, we just try to love. Um, it says faith, verse 11. Love, endurance. We're supposed to pursue endurance, which is kind of interesting because pursuing is an endurance activity. So we're pursuing endurance. We're trying to learn what it means to keep following Jesus even though circumstances are difficult. And gentleness. Pursue gentleness. So it's just a snapshot of this character of Christ. The life of godliness. That this is the most important thing. Jesus said, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Right? Think about when I'm hungry. 
It's like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm hungry. <laughs> Give me something to eat, then I'll talk to you. I'm hungry right now. Right? Uh, or I'm thirsty, even worse. When I'm thirsty, I really don't want to talk to anyone. I, I just need a drink. I can't even think. I need drink. And do I really, as a Christian, hunger and thirst after righteousness? Am I pursuing godliness? Is that that much of a burden to me? Or am I complacent about my obedience to Christ and hungering and thirsting after wealth and money or whatever it may be that I've sold myself out to instead of Christ? It's really a challenge, you know. I, I mean, think of your own lives. And I think of my life. How often do we find ourselves pursuing righteousness and obedience to God? You know? Hmm. I don't know how often I really do that. I think I just take it for granted while I'm a Christian. I think what I find myself doing is making up the kinds of excuses that those two guys at lunch made up in jest, but I find that for me sometimes they're unspoken and serious. That, you know, I only have one sin. Maybe that's it. It's like, well, are you pursuing righteousness? And I'm like, well, you know, really, I mean, I'm not that bad. There isn't a lot necessarily to pursue. And, and I wouldn't maybe say that, but I think sometimes that's the working assumption. You know, let me ask you, what are your three biggest areas where you struggle to follow Christ in obedience in your life? And maybe we go, hmm, I don't know. I have to think about that. What do you mean we have to think about that? Wouldn't, wouldn't we know that? <laughs> if we're really pursuing righteousness, wouldn't we know I'm pursuing and these are the three fences I've got to hop? Wouldn't we be aware of that? And yet I think we're so unaware when is the last time, I'm just going to throw out questions, it's sort of uh, questions for you to think about and me to think about. When's the last time we really grieved over sin in our lives? Where I just sat down and said, God, oh, please change me. You know, do I grieve over sin? When's the last time we've had that experience of opening up the Bible? Maybe we haven't opened the Bible for months, but you open the Bible and it's like that spiritual MRI, you know, and then, and the Holy Spirit's like, <clears throat> well, I'm sorry to break the news to you, Jeremy, but you really have a problem with your ego, whatever, or whatever it is. And the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, puts His finger on those areas of our lives we need to change. But could it be we are so out of touch with our souls that we think we're so spiritual, but we're so out of touch with what real spirituality is, which is obedience to Christ, through His Spirit and through the Word. That's real spirituality. We're so out of touch with that that, that we do not even aware of where God needs to do the work in our lives so that we could pursue righteousness. Or what about the other uh, funny kind of ingest excuse that the, that the other guy said where he said, well, you know, I take the money because Jesus already died for my sins. And I think sometimes we think that way too. We, we say, hey, look, Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I'm not saved by good works. I'm not saved by striving. I'm not saved by my morality. True. We don't get to heaven by building up a good resume of a good life and then say, well, God, I lived a pretty good life. That's not how we get right with God. We're reconciled to God only through the blood of Christ shed for us. But, but once we're saved and converted, once the Holy Spirit lives in us when we come to Christ, then a necessary fruit of that conversion will be an increasingly holy life over time. The evidence of salvation is... A slowly but surely transformed life. Not perfect. It doesn't mean sometimes we don't totally fall on our faces as Christians. Of course we do. But it means like the, the growth chart for our lives kind of goes like this. But over the years it's increasing. 
And we find a growing, gradual holiness as we depend upon Christ to change us day by day, moment by moment, taking up our cross daily. Is there increasing growth in our lives? He's like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I, when I was at camp as a little kid, I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus. I stood up at the camp meeting when they said, stand up to receive Jesus. I walked down the aisle when they said, who wants to receive Jesus? Walk down. And maybe you were converted, maybe not, but what's the evidence? Transformed life. And if it's been decades since we've really walked with the Lord, but we're putting some kind of confidence in a little prayer we prayed as a kid, people, your confidence is not founded, well-founded. I mean, I don't even know if you're... Are you really converted? Because a necessary, not optional, necessary consequence of conversion, the sign of conversion, the great mark of conversion is persevering growth over time as God empowers us. And if we just find we've been stymied, not growing in our Christian faith for years, I mean, there's got to be a real question about whether there's even really conversion there. We've got to go back and seek the foundations. See if it's true. Test your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, you know, if we had a kid or a grandkid or a nephew and the kid was nine years old but was physically, in terms of height and weight, the same size as a four-year-old, wouldn't you be nervous? Yeah. I'd go to every doctor in the land. I'd be at Mass General. I'd be talking to physicians. I'd be going to endocrinologists to check out their growth patterns. And is this kid really growing? Is there something wrong with this kid? What's going on? I'd be flipping out. I would spend, spare no expense. I'd do a home equity loan on my house. All to find out, is this kid going to grow or not? And yet, we are the children of God and we seem to be completely okay with being children of God and not growing for years. That's just bizarre, isn't it? That we don't hunger and thirst after maturity. Why is it that the growing in godliness in so many times in the church is the exception? And we're like, there's like one guy who's growing, and we're like, woo, he's on fire. Woo. Man, that guy's on fire for Jesus. Isn't that cool? He's just growing. And we're not. And we're like, woo, we need to all be on fire. And the fire needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger over the years as we become more and more impassioned and in love with Christ. That's the ideal. Um, this is Mother's Day. And, you know, what a task it is to be a mother. I'm astounded at my wife and what she has to do to raise four children. I just, I mean, oh, I've learned so much about parenting and about just being an adult from watching her be a mom. Um, you know, it, it's, re- it's really fantastic. But what about this area of discipleship and, and righteousness? Don't you see, moms and dads, that our greatest task in raising children is to teach them about the Lord? and about righteousness and how to follow Christ and to show them what it means to be a godly person. And granted, when kids get older, they have to make their own minds. You can teach the kid all the right things. And kids make their own choices. But that's our job is to teach them. And, you know, we're parents, again, what are we hungering and thirsting after? We spend so much effort making sure little Hoosy gets to kung fu class and soccer and cello you know, and computer lab class and, and uses sanitary hand wipes to make sure they don't get germs and wears a helmet and they don't go to anyone's house who has firearms. And, you know, like we have, right? I mean, we have all these rules to protect our children. 
which is good. I mean, I'm not saying we should be irresponsible with our kids. But do we have the same kind of rigor and and sort of hyper-concern for the spiritual welfare of our kids? You know? That's great your kid went to an Ivy League school, but are they going to hell? Do we pray for our kids? Do we teach them the Gospel? You know, I'm totally preaching to myself here. Because I just find it so easy to be so busy with everything else and to be unconcerned for the spiritual life and growth of children. And what about in the church? Are we as a church, as a body, concerned about spiritual maturity? And Because I don't want you to think that this whole talk of growth in Christ is just kind of like a personal thing. That like growing as a Christian is kind of like a personal hobby or something. I mean, this is a community activity. Christians are called to be in community in the local church. Uh, this idea of sort of being a lone ranger Christian in a, and get a Bible study and that's all you need is just so unbiblical. Your, your small group Bible study is not the church. It's not a church. You need to be in a congregation where the Word of God is taught and where there's a, a, a community of accountability with one another. And so as we hear together in the church, do we ever really sort of challenge each other in maturity? Or is our conversation with each other always about like kind of Red Sox and weather? We don't get much deeper than that. That's great. That's nothing. I talk about Red Sox and weather. But do we ever go deeper than that in our conversations? Do we ever say, hey, I just want to tell you what I saw you do the other week. That was great. I've really seen you growing in your faith. That's, re- that's what we need to hear. Or, hey, I heard what you said to that guy. And, you know, I, hey, I know I get frustrated too. But, I mean, that was, I don't know. You think that might have been out of line? Who are you to get in my business? <laughs> I'm your brother in Christ. We've we got to be in each other's business if we're going to grow. You can't do this solo. Or I'm going through something at work or something in my home or something with my in-laws and it's a really difficult situation and we tell someone else in the church about it and they, they, want, they want to think with us about how we could grow in Christ-like character through the trial. That's what the church is meant to be is all of us growing and spurring each other on toward greater holiness and greater godliness. But so often I think we stay at Red Sox and weather and we never get deeper and to really care about growth in each other's lives. Are we pursuing righteousness? Are we hungry for maturity? I want South Shore Baptist Church to be a church where maturing Christians are the norm. Well, that's just how it should be. I want to be a pastor who's maturing. You know, if you've seen my life, and those of you who have seen it more closely than others, over the past five years, you know, over the past ten years, have you seen me maturing? You know, Seth, have you seen me maturing as a godly Christian? Don't answer that, please. Um, you know, but really, have, have you seen me maturing? And if I'm not maturing, you need a new pastor. You need your leaders, elders and pastors in the church to be not perfect, not infallible, but slowly but surely progressing in godliness before your eyes as we encourage you to do the same. This should be the norm of church life, not the, wow, that guy's the exception. He's on fire. We should all be growing in our faith. And there are good reasons for growth. There are good reasons to follow this command to pursue. There are good motivations. And I just want to go back to Proverbs and really quickly show you three. I'll just tick them off here. Because Proverbs, go back to Proverbs chapter um, 23. Proverbs chapter 23. I want to give you quickly three reasons from Proverbs why we ought to flee the love of money 
and pursue righteousness. The first is this, because, righteous, uh, because the love of money and money doesn't last anyway. It comes and it goes. A million comes and a million goes. So easy to lose a lot of money, just as it's hard to make it. Look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 23. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Money comes, money goes. If we base our life and our identity on money, we are making a foolish choice. Uh, you know, think of the housing market right now. Great modern right now example. I bought my house about nine years ago, and it was as the market was still going up, and I would Zillow my house. You know Zillow where you can check out anyone's house prices? And I would Zillow my address and find out what my house was worth. And it was like going up and up and up. It, it, not quite, but it almost got to where it doubled in value. And I was like, wow, my house doubled in value. I'm doing good. I'm a good investor. <laughs> well, I timed that right. You know, whatever. And, uh, you know, you feel good. And then the housing market went, and then the roller, you know, the roller coaster went the other way. And I haven't been on Zillow since then. But um, <laughs> I don't want to see what it's worth. <laughs> you know, if I'm paying more for my mortgage than my house is worth, I just don't want to know. But, but yeah, it comes and it goes. Money comes and it goes. Sometimes it has nothing to do with us. It's things outside of our, our control. Our businesses go up and down. <clears throat> so don't wear yourselves out seeking after money. Be content with what you have. Don't give yourself to the pursuit of treasure. Number two reason we should flee the love of money and pursue righteousness is because God's going to take care of our material needs anyway. He's got that. So pursue righteousness. He's got your back. God's got your six. He's watching you. He's going to take care of you. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 3. Great little proverb. Proverbs 10.3 The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. You're not going to go hungry. God will provide for your families. If you seek His righteousness. Does it mean we're going to live large in the style to which we've grown accustomed? Maybe not. <laughs> we may have to downsize. We may have to give up some things. And that might not be bad. And, and so that's okay too. Maybe that's what the Lord wants us to strip away so He can fill us with more of Himself. So it may not mean we're going to live in a grand style. But if we seek the Lord, He's going to take care of us. Your family will not go hungry. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom, His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things. In other words, your food and clothing and material needs will be provided for. God is going to provide those things you need so you can trust Him. And I just want to encourage those of you right now who may be in financial straits. And you know, it's always easy for me to say because I'm not at this moment in financial straits. But you know, if you've been there, you know. Somehow you make it through. God is faithful. Sometimes when we don't even have our eyes on Him, He's still faithful. He still brings us through. He's a good God. And so the Lord will not let the righteous go hungry. We may have to give up some creature comforts, but He's not going to make us starve. He's a good God who will care for our physical needs. So flee the love of money. Pursue righteousness because one, money's fleeting anyway. Number two, if you seek the Lord, He's going to take care of your physical needs. And then the last one, the close of this one, which is money can't protect us from the judgment day. But righteousness saves. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. 
Wealth is worthless, it says in chapter 11, verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. Wealth can't save us on the judgment day. When we stand before God and His judgment and His holy glory is revealed to the world and we see this holy, awesome God who is, who is what is, He is the essence of good. He is the essence of beautiful. And we realize that we have lived our whole lives individually and as a human race in rebellion against that God on that day of judgment. Our money will not protect us from the judgment we're going to face. You know, it won't matter how much money we made or didn't make or what our net worth was. And God cares about that. I think our money will matter in the sense that God will call us to account for how we used it. How, how we used His money. <laughs> but, but it's not going to matter in the sense that we're going to be able to pay our way out of something or get into the express club because we had a certain amount of what We're going to stand before God. Look, look at this, this powerful image of that day of wrath. This is a, kind of a shocking phrase, the day of wrath. Well, there's an image of it in Revelation chapter 6. And this is the last verse we'll look at. Revelation chapter 6. Turn to the last book of the Bible, chapter 6. This apocalyptic image of the last day. It says, Revelation chapter 6. It says, I watched in verse, I'm sorry, I'm in verse 12. It says, I watched as He opened the sixth seal. These seals are how God's judgments are revealed. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Cosmic dissolution in the presence of the coming of the Lord. And then look at the response of people. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, didn't save them. The mighty, and every slave, and every free man, everybody, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They all went spelunking. They're all hiding in rocks and crevices. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Now stop right there. Think about that. Especially those of you who are claustrophobic. What would be so bad and terrifying that you would want to climb into a cave and pray that the cave would collapse on you? Like, what would make that a really good option? What would we be having to flee and be so scared of that I would want to crawl into a hole and have it cave in on me? What is it? Well, let's read. Fall on us. Please cave in on me and hide me from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? I just I struggle for words. It's just such a terrifying image. As God comes out from behind the protective veil that He's put up to protect us and He reveals His face to the universe. The holy, awesome Creator whom we have completely rejected. And it just makes humanity want to crawl into caves and run and leave it all behind to save ourselves. 
And there's this resounding question at the end. Who can stand? And what are we going to stand on when the rocks are giving way? Who can stand? Can the rich stand by virtue of their wealth? Can I stand by virtue of the good deeds I've done in my life? My self-constructed morality and religiosity? Who can stand on that day? No one can stand. And yet, I believe there is a way to stand on the judgment day. And I think it's embedded right in the verse. Look back at verse 16. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne. There's God in judgment. And from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a funny, almost oxymoron, isn't it? Wrath of a lamb? Like, lamb wrath? I mean, it sounds silly. An angry lamb? Like, ooh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and yet, this lamb, this, this is imagery here. It's not literally a lamb. This is imagery. The wrath of the lamb. And what is the lamb? Who's the lamb? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus was the lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. Just as in the Old Testament, they sacrificed the lamb and so it, in a sense, took the punishment for the sinner so the sinner could be forgiven and the punishment was visited on the lamb. So Christ is the lamb sacrificed for us. And so there is a way to stand on the judgment day, but it's not by our own righteousness. It's through the lamb who was sacrificed. And as we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have nothing. I am nothing. I am a lost sinner who has lived a life worshiping wealth instead of You. But Jesus, I believe that You died as a lamb for sinners. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And what happens is His righteousness covers us. And then His righteousness through the Holy Spirit begins to fill us. So that by His Holy Spirit we begin to live that righteous life that's His life in us through His sanctifying power. It's through the Lamb that was slain and now lives again that we can stand on that day. I just want to ask you, have you put your faith in Christ? What is your hope in? Is it in wealth? Is it in your spirituality? Whatever that means to you. Is it in your education or your grooming, You know the way you've been raised and the kind of schools you've gone to? What is it that you cling to before God? Nothing can stand except Christ. And so put your hope in Christ. Let me just read you. I'll just close with this little reading. It's a snippet from a Puritan prayer. Uh, And it's a great little section. Let me just read it to you. It says, I hasten towards an hour when earthly pursuits and possessions will appear vain, when it will be indifferent whether I have been rich or poor, successful or disappointed, admire or despised. But it will be of eternal moment that I have mourned for sin, hungered and thirsted after righteousness, loved the Lord Jesus in sincerity, and gloried in the cross. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, give us grace to continue contemplating these eternal things. And God, I pray that we would be a church that pursues righteousness. Not that we're perfect, but that Lord, I pray that we would hunger and thirst and seek after holiness in our lives. 
And God, I pray for anyone here who has never laid hold of the cross, who's never given, put their hope in the Lamb. Lord, would You just be with them and give them that faith to cross that line and to put their faith in Christ that on that day they might stand not by virtue of their own righteousness, but by virtue of Christ's. And so, Lord, may, us, may we be a growing church. May I be a growing pastor. Lord, may we more and more as a congregation reflect the character of Jesus Himself. And we pray this in His name and ask for it through the power of the Spirit. Amen.